Hello to those at home under blankets. Hello to those who braved the wind chills to join us here in the sanctuary. And hello to the Templetons right across the parking lot in the parsonage who welcomed a new baby, Ira, since we last gathered. It's great. Yes. Cheers to them. <laughs> Sounds like everybody's doing well over there. Uh, it's great to be together. It's a little bit of an odd request, but these are odd times, as you know. If you've started worshiping with us this year, and you now consider this your church home, but you're not sure that any of us know that you now consider this your church home because you've been watching online, would you let us know that somehow? Uh, shoot us an email, submit a comment somewhere. We're starting to learn about some of those folks, which has been awesome, but honestly, it kills me to imagine that there's someone out there that I'm responsible for pastoring whom I don't even know that I'm responsible for pastoring. So uh, thanks for reaching out to us. Shoot an email, northsub at northsub.com would be one way to do that. And uh, thanks for letting us know. Let's pray together. Lord, you're big. You love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. We millennials are now navigating transition that every generation before us has had to navigate, namely the shift from being young people who roll our eyes at our parents' concern about our generation's immorality to being real adults sweating over the immorality of the generation our kids are growing up in. Now, it's important to remember that some of what's edgy today morally speaking, wouldn't have even raised eyebrows in, say, ancient Rome. Still, the boundary lines certainly have been pushed uh, in the last century and a half in America. Previous generations found themselves apprehensive about the invention of the bicycle, which would certainly increase promiscuity. Rock music, which would foster inappropriate dancing, two-piece swimsuits. It's hard to imagine what our great-grandparents would say about Lollapalooza. In every generation, a certain segment of the population is unconcerned, happy to go along with whatever happens to be considered moral today, believing that this generation must be the most enlightened of all the generations, oblivious to the fact that some of what's considered enlightened in one generation, in every generation, ends up being exposed in the next generation as cringeworthy or worse. But there are plenty of others, religious and non-religious, in any generation who aren't willing to just buy whatever version of morality the world happens to be selling at the moment. At least not without questioning it first. And anyone in this camp is going to experience some level of concern about the immorality that they see around them. The question is, when we feel concerned about the state of the world, what do we do with that concern? What I see is that people, we attempt to alleviate that concern in one of three ways. And I haven't heard anybody characterize it exactly this way. It's not perfect. These metaphors just help me categorize what I've observed. Generally speaking, each of us gets to work building either a sniper tower or a fortress or a relief outpost. So some build a sniper tower. What I mean by that is not literally, obviously, but verbally, maybe on social media, maybe with hateful words at protests. 
whether you're conservative and see abortion and sexual promiscuity as some of the world's great evils, or whether you're liberal and see fossil fuels and bigotry as some of the world's great evils, one way to respond to the evils you see in the world is to engage in a culture war, to fight tooth and nail, to try to overpower the immoral forces around by shouting them down or canceling them out. You build a sniper tower. You try to pick off your enemies one by one. Others build a fortress. And again, we're not talking about a literal fortress, using fortress as a metaphor for this safe bubble in which you and your family or you and your tribe hunker down and try to withstand the world's onslaught by isolating yourselves from it all. So as a conservative family, you don't hang out with the neighbor kids because what if the neighbor kids swear? As a liberal faculty member at a university, you oppose the hiring of conservatives because what if their views upset some students? You build a fortress. It's safer in there with me and my family or me and my tribe. Others build a relief outpost. A relief outpost doesn't exist primarily for defense against the outside world, but rather as a launching point to bring aid to that sick and diseased world. A relief outpost isn't really a place you hunker down. It's a place you check in and get resupplied before going back out to minister to those in need. And so some, admittedly not many, are attempting to approach an immoral world with a relief outpost mentality. Sniper tower, fortress, relief outpost. Most of us have moments where we maybe slip into one of those, intentionally or unintentionally, but you could probably name Christians and Christian institutions you know whose default posture toward immorality in the world matches each of those three. As I was reflecting this week on how these three approaches map to, uh, I was realizing they map to the approaches of three biblical characters, actually, all of whom were famous for living in extremely wicked times. So, remember Jonah? Right, city of Nineveh was unthinkably wicked in every way, completely godless, so much so that God was ready to wipe them off the earth. But instead of just raining down hellfire on them, God sends a guy named Jonah to warn them, to give them a chance to turn from their sin and escape disaster. So how does Jonah respond to that calling? To use our metaphor, he wants to build a sniper tower, right? He says, God, I know you too well. You're going to have mercy on these people, but they deserve to suffer. That's a sniper tower mentality. And remember Noah, right? Uh, talk about a fortress approach. When God ran out of patience for the wicked world Noah was living in, Noah quite literally built a fortress on the water. Right? Now you say, what's wrong with that? That's what God told him to do. And of course, the building of the ark was an incredible act of faith. But what about before he built the ark? When Noah was told the world was going to be destroyed in a flood, how did he respond? Okay, I'll start building my boat. It's a fortress mentality. But there's a third way beyond, besides the sniper tower and the fortress, represented by a third biblical individual. In our story today, Abraham, uh, when told that his wicked neighbors are going to be destroyed, his, his response is different from that of Jonah. And it's even a touch different from that of Noah. Would you turn with me to Genesis 18? Genesis 18. The first half of this chapter was covered in David Nonnenmacher's excellent uh, wide sweeping sermon last week we assigned him like three chapters and uh, he covered that admirably uh, 
Remember what happens here in the first half of chapter 18? These three men, seemingly men, come visit Abraham's camp. Now we're going to learn over the course of chapter 18 and 19 that these three men visiting Abraham are actually two angels uh, accompanying the Lord himself. They're, They're coming in the appearance of men, though. They share the news that Abraham's wife, Sarah, will have a baby within the year. Sarah laughs. God's promise to their family is reaffirmed. We're going to pick up at verse 16 now in chapter 18. That's where the topic of conversation changes. And we learn the primary reason why the Lord and these two angelic messengers have come to visit Abraham. There's a city nearby that has reached the level of wickedness that Nineveh would one day reach later to where God's ready to destroy it. They've reached a level of wickedness that, that was reached in Noah's day before the flood to where the most gracious thing for God to do at this point is to wipe it out. We're going to see, though, in verses 16 to 33, that when Abraham gets the news about the impending destruction, his instinct isn't to say, good riddance, like Jonah did. It's not even to say, well, at least I'll be safe, as Noah did. It's actually to plead for the lives of his wicked pagan neighbors. In the scripture text, we're going to see three things. Sodom's sin, Abraham's plea, and God's grace. Sodom's sin, Abraham's plea, God's grace. First, Sodom's sin. Looking at verses 16 through 21. Follow along as I read that section and listen, not just for what Sodom's sin was, not just for what God plans to do about it, but particularly for why God is telling Abraham about these plans he has. Let's read it. Then the men set out from there. And they looked down toward Sodom. This is two angels and the Lord. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I'll know. If you spent some time thinking about it, you could probably identify a few messages that came through loud and clear in your family of origin. Uh, On the flip side, you probably identify a few messages that were more or less left out. Every family has emphases that you hear in the home. Every family has blind spots, right? So, for example, in my family, I didn't necessarily hear much about the value of the fine arts or uh, on care for the environment. They just, for whatever reason, those weren't major emphases in my home. However, my sisters and I did hear every day in one form or another, being a Higgins means you're disciplined. It means you're tough. It means you outwork everybody. And sure enough, those are some of the messages that became most formative for us over time. I bring up the messages that come through in our families of origin because what's happening here in the text we just read is that God is instilling the messages he wants Abraham to pass down to his new family. The family which chapter 12 told us would be the one chosen family through which God will bless all the other families on earth. Take a look at what I mean, starting verse 17. 
It'll take a few steps here to trace the flow, but I uh, hope you can follow here uh, what I'm trying to put forward. These two angels, the Lord, Abraham, they're overlooking Sodom. And here's, wh- here's what God says, verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? So he's saying, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. He's the leader of the chosen family. i got to tell him. So that makes us ask, why would Abraham's status as head of this family make God want to let him in on his plans to destroy Sodom? What's the connection between the two? Well, for one thing, God doesn't do anything without telling his prophets what he's going to do. Amos 3, 7 tells us that. But what is God's purpose in this particular situation for letting the father of the chosen family know about the judgment he's going to bring upon some non-chosen families? Verse 19. For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Did you catch that? Massively important. Why did God choose Abraham according to verse 19? Why? Take a look. What was the end goal? It was so that Abraham would instruct his children to keep the way of the Lord, and that by doing so, God's promise to Abraham would come true. It might be helpful to conceptualize verse 19 uh, visually. So Abraham's got a mission to be a blessing to the nations. That's the promise referred to. That the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him, that, he, that his family be a blessing to all the families on the earth. He's chosen for that mission. As we see uh, at the beginning of verse 19, for I have chosen him so that, but then there's a middle step. Right? There's a step between the choosing and the mission that he's chosen for. And that middle step that God envisions, this key link between the choosing and the mission, seems to be the ethics of Abraham's family, keeping the way of the Lord. So it's not just that Abraham's chosen for a mission. It's that Abraham's chosen to live in a certain way ethically. And by living in a certain way ethically, that's how, at least it's one way how, all nations will be blessed through his family. Do you see that in the structure of verse 19? Now, maybe, after looking at that in more depth, we're able to understand why God Abraham, well, God would want Abraham to know about the impending destruction of Sodom. He wants Abraham to remember it. He, he wants Abraham to be able to tell his kids, kids, this is what happens to families that rebel against God. Cities, nations that rebel against God. Parents attempting to raise kids to be children of Abraham by faith, do you warn your kids about what happens to people who rebel against God? Now, I think it's worth spending just a couple minutes getting into the nitty-gritty here because what we've looked at isn't all that helpful if we can't identify, one, what is actually wrong with the conduct of Sodom, and two, how does God actually want Abraham's family to live differently than the people of Sodom lived? So let's look at it. First, the error of Sodom. The Bible has a lot to say about the sins of Sodom, not just here, but in other books of the Bible that reflect on this story. In the interest of time, I'll just give you four references and let you track them down on your own. Each of these I put a summary with. Uh, Genesis 19, which is the next chapter, which we're not going to look at because we're focusing on Abraham's story, and that's more about Lot and the city of Sodom. 
the sins that are chronicled in Sodom are failure of hospitality, violence, sexual perversion. Isaiah 1 reflects on this story later on and talks about Sodom as a place of innocent bloodshed. Ezekiel 16.49 is interesting because it also reflects on the sins of Sodom that brought God's judgment. And here's what it says. Arrogance, affluence, callousness, and failure to help the poor. Then you have Jude 7 in the New Testament in which Sodom is highlighted as a place uh, in which there's sexual immorality, including homosexual practice, which we do see in Genesis 19. Now, there are two types of sin here, broadly speaking, if we categorize all of this. Uh, If you come from a more progressive church tradition, you might have only heard this part, Ezekiel 16, 49 type thing, where Sodom's talked about as an inhospitable bunch of rich people who don't take care of the poor. In other words, you may have only heard of Sodom's social injustice, to use contemporary language. But if you come from a more conservative church tradition, you may have only heard of Sodom's sexual sin and thought that's the sum total of why God was so displeased with them. In fact, God is offended by both dimensions of the sin in Sodom. The sexual sin, lust, homosexual practice, sexual abuse, all of which are consistently decried by God throughout the Bible. But there's also a dimension of social injustice here. The talk in verse 20 about the outcry, you see that there in verse 20, the outcry that uh, has risen up to God. Just about every time you see that term translated outcry in the Old Testament, it comes up a lot. It's referring to people crying out because they're suffering from oppression, cruelty, injustice on the part of powerful people. When we realize that, it might make more sense than why Ezekiel 16 highlights Sodom's lack of care for the poor. God has come down in Genesis 18 in part because he's heard the cries of the poor in the region of Sodom who are being unjustly kept in poverty by their wealthy oppressors in the city. So maybe it's not such a surprise then when we back up to verse 19 and see God telling Abraham, hey, I I want you to instill something different in your family, something different than the way of Sodom. I want your family to be known for my way. And what's my way? Righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. You've heard me catalog before that common Old Testament pairing, righteousness and justice. When these two are used together, the picture in view is one of a well-ordered society characterized by shalom. You could picture a social fabric that is well-woven together without fraying or ripping and tearing. People living in right relationship with one another, which requires, among other things, care for the poor often highlighted in conjunction with these two terms, righteousness and justice. Making things right when brokenness and sin lead to the social fabric being torn. So the sin of Sodom that draws God's wrath is both personal and corporate. It's both sexual and social. His wrath isn't hasty. It's measured as evidenced by the fact that even though he's all-knowing and doesn't need to personally come down, literally speaking, to do this, he comes down personally to confirm the report before he takes action. The judgment that he'll rain down in chapter 19 will serve to answer the cries of Sodom's victims in this area by breaking Sodom's power over them. As for Abraham's family, they will be recipients of God's promise to Abraham only if they live distinctly 
from unrighteous, unjust places like Sodom. Isn't that what verse 19 says? That that's how they will inherit the promises? <coughs> um, Abraham's descendants are chosen to keep the way of the Lord. And the way of the Lord is kept by doing righteousness and justice. So let's circle back to that question that we asked a few minutes ago about the messages that came through in your family of origin. And let's push the question now down a generation. How are we instructing the next generation? And even if you're maybe a teenager, how are you instructing your little siblings, the little ones that you see here at the church? What messages are they hearing most clearly from us through our words and through our actions? Three specific challenges stand out to me in the verses we just read. And these will be very brief. And maybe contrast them with a good and incomplete message and a more complete message so when we add in what's also necessary. It's good when we pass down the message, God is loving and kind. Crucial. Also necessary, as we're reminded in this passage, is to pass down the message that God's patience doesn't last forever. He will one day carry out just and dreadful punishment on all sin. Next, it's a good message, but incomplete, that God gives us rules to follow. Our kids, our next generation needs to hear that there are rules that we need to follow. However, are we also sharing with him the, them the reason behind those rules? Uh, that we won't be much blessing to the nations if we aren't living ethically distinct from those nations. That this is all tied to the mission that God's given us. And third, we do well to pass on the message, live a life of sexual purity, unlike Sodom, right? But are we also passing down the call to weave righteousness and justice into the fabric of your community by caring for the poor and standing up for the oppressed? That's our first section, Sodom's sin, God's response to it. Now we go more briefly to the second section, Abraham's plea. The final 12 verses of the passage. Without these final 12 verses, we'd still know Abraham as a man of faith. But we wouldn't know him as a man of intense passion for the lives of the lost. Actually, when you read the Jewish rabbis commenting on all of what we call the Old Testament, but particularly a passage like this one, they point out this passage as the difference between Noah, who walked with God, which is great, and Abraham, who did more than just walk with God. Abraham not only believes God, as Noah did, but intercedes for those who are about to be destroyed. That's, what the, that's how the rabbis view this passage and comment on the c contrast between the two. Let's see it here, verses 22 to 33. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, that's the two angels, they went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if, if I find that Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. 
Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the word be angry, and I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, uh, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the first time in the Bible that we see a person initiate a conversation with God. It must have been terrifying, as we can see in the great humility and deference with which Abraham brings his request. Take a look, verse 27. I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Verse 30, let not the Lord be angry. Verse 31, uh, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Verse 32, let not the Lord be angry. <clears throat> it's almost a little painful to imagine being a fly on the wall for this conversation as Abraham inches his way along increment by increment, right? Six times. We're used to reading threefold exchanges in Scripture. That's very common. So when Abraham goes back for that fifth and sixth attempt, it really stands out. Now, Abraham's haggling might remind some of us, on a human level anyway, of some haggling we've had to do during this year of pandemic restrictions, right? Here's, a, here's an example. We were at a restaurant just two weeks ago with 11 family members who were all, who were all staying together anyway. So uh, we preferred to eat at the same table instead of being split and rigidly adhering to the restaurant's COVID regulation of 10 people per table. So there was a gentle cordial back and forth at the restaurant. Like, okay, so we've got 10 and a high chair. Um, it would be sad if just because of this one high chair, you, we all had to miss out on time with half the family that we're already staying with. We were unsuccessful in our plea, but we respected their diligence. It's, a remar it's remarkable, though, to see a human talking to God in this way, right? We do it with each other, but to talk to God that way? Like, look at what, think about what Abraham's saying here. He's saying, okay, God, so, so you wouldn't destroy Sodom if 50 righteous people were there, but you would if there were only 45? So you're really saying that you would destroy a whole city because of five people? That's the basis of his argument, right? That's bold to say that to God. But we can see that the underlying question pushing Abraham to be so bold is that first question he asks in verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What's the answer to that question? As I read it, all of God's responses during this back and forth point in the direction of a convincing no in response to that question. No, it doesn't seem that God is eager to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. Abraham knows his God is a God of justice, as he says in verse 25. So hearing from God over the course of these verses that even just 10 righteous people would be enough to keep God from destroying the city, that has to be a relief to Abraham. But at the end of the back and forth, once Abraham has gotten God down from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10, God ends the conversation. So the question remains for Abraham and for the reader, what will God do if he can't find even 10? We'll find the answer to that in just a minute, but let's zoom back out. 
on this latter portion of the passage, verses 22 to 33, and reflect again on what we see here about Abraham's heart. This man could have said, good for you, God. I was wondering when you'd wipe out Sodom. He could have said, at least I'll be okay. He could have said, hey, can you please just save my nephew out of there before you rain down fire and sulfur? He's a good guy. Instead, he pleads not only for his family members, but for all the wicked people of Sodom. Do we recognize in ourselves that same heart for lost people, the lost people of Deerfield, the lost people of Northbrook, of Highland Park, of your neighborhood? Is that the heart that you and I have for them? To plead for them? I'm no expert on cultural moments, but it certainly seems to me like this is a crossroads moment when churches on the North Shore are having to figure out who they're going to be in the years to come with respect to the culture. And I say the following with love. You may have noticed we've started incorporating prayers for other local churches in our weekly prayers during the service. That's intentional. <clears throat> but there are churches in our area who have assimilated to the world in recent years. They become indistinguishable from, from Sodom and thereby lost their ability to be anything more than a mirror to the North Shore anymore. They can't be a blessing to the North Shore because they're just like the North Shore. There are other churches in our area who have taken the Jonah sniper tower route. In other words, they've come to think that they are the ones whom God has called to hurl fireballs at Sodom. And there are indications that such churches have actually grown in numbers and engagement this year as they find that pointing angrily at the sin out there uh, can rally a lot of passionate people to your cause. For some time, North Suburban Church was, with significant and notable exceptions, by and large, a third type of church, a Noah type of church, a place where we shelter our kids from the evils of the world and make sure we're faithful even when the rest of the world outside our fortress isn't. There's much to be commended in that approach, actually. And we could do much worse than we did during this, that chapter of our history. But, no thanks to me, but long before I came to this church, when Pastor Craig, church leadership, maybe even church leadership before them, they were indicating a desire that this church would be more than just a fortress. That we church members would be more than just Noah's. And so what I've seen over the last four and a half years is that slowly but surely a godly grief has developed in our congregation that our neighbors are missing out on the life that we found in Christ and are in danger, honestly, of suffering the wrath of God. And I've come alongside many of you as you've gone before the Lord in desperate prayer, pleading for your neighbors who don't yet know him. And that leads me to believe that many of you share my prayer that we might be that relief outpost sort of church. As a posture, anyway. There are times to shelter, I get that. But as a posture, that it would be a relief outpost sort of church. We refuse to compromise with the world, always remaining distinct from it, but yet that we'd be a people who lose sleep sometimes over the lost, cry out for them in anguish, begging God to relent and have mercy. It's Abraham's plea. Sodom's sin, Abraham's plea. Finally, a short note on God's grace. 
circling back around to a verse we've quickly skipped through in verse 21, <clears throat> I want to ask, what makes Noah confident? I mean, what makes Abraham confident that it might be acceptable to bring this bold intercessory prayer before God? I want to make sure that we caught that Abraham's confident because God himself opens the door for Abraham to plead with him. Look at verse 21. This is God speaking. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. You see that? With those two words, if not, God opens the door just a crack to the possibility that he won't destroy everyone in Sodom. Abraham sees that for what it is. An indication of the heart of God, a God who's constantly looking for any other outcome besides that people would perish. And so Abraham believes God to be the sort of God who would want him to cry out on these people's behalf. And of course, the ensuing boldness by Abraham seems to be rooted in more than just those two words, if not. But I guess what I'm proposing is that Abraham hears, if not, the way he hears it because of what he also knows about God's character and God's promises. He knows about God's character. His character is that God expects even flawed human judges to act justly, not punishing the righteous with the unrighteous. So Abraham reasons, well, God must be at least as just as he calls on human judges to be. It's his character, but it's also rooted in God's promises because in verse 18, God just reaffirmed his commitment to bless all nations through Abraham. Abraham seemingly reasons, doesn't that include Sodom? Isn't Sodom one of those nations? Then I'm not trying to violate God's promises by pushing back on this. I'm actually trying to affirm his promises by pushing back against God. Abraham's knowledge of God's character and his promises lead him to hear the note of hope in those two little words, if not. And Abraham takes the opportunity to plead for God's mercy. Perhaps the fact that God hasn't destroyed our own nation yet, he hasn't abandoned the North Shore yet, is a little sliver of hope that we need to boldly come before him. But as we do, let's make sure it's absolutely clear. This isn't a story that we just read of a merciful guy pleading with a wrathful God to break character and show mercy just this once. Make an exception. This is a story of a God so merciful that his mercy far exceeds even the mercy that Abraham dares to ask for. Think about it. When they ended the conversation, what had God committed to? How many? Ten, right? If there are ten, I won't destroy the city. End of conversation. Next chapter, if we had time to read it, we'd find out how many righteous are in the city? One-ish, right? Put an asterisk on that because Lot's really kind of shady. Uh, in some ways. Yet, what, God, what does God do? He goes beyond his promise to Abraham to rescue Lot and his family, even though ten righteous cannot be found there. See, even the most compassionate among us can't match the Lord's compassion. He extends mercy that we couldn't even think to ask him to extend. We'll never outgrace the God of grace. We won't. In other words, Genesis 18 is not the story of an ornery God begrudgingly compromising with Abraham to get Abraham off his back. This is the story of a God who invites his people to pray to him as Abraham does on behalf of their neighbors because it's his great delight to respond to his people's intercession by showing mercy. 
So our big idea today is this. When troubled by the morality of the world around us, as we should be at times, may we plead with God to save our neighbor. When troubled by the morality of the world around us, may we plead with God to save our neighbors. The latest news about immorality out there makes you want to set up your sniper tower. There are plenty of discernment bloggers and Christian YouTube celebrities who are happy to feed that desire in you and help you feel justified in your courageous, caustic stand for truth. If the latest news about immorality out there makes you want to build your fortress, there are networks of North Shore Christians who want to partner with you to create Christian versions of everything that exists out there, to insulate our kids from the dangerous world, to build them a bubble so they can't be influenced all with a focus on helping them survive God's judgment on the madness out there. Well, here at North Sub, we're looking to Abraham, and we're dreaming of something more. While Noah seems to have accepted the judgment, more or less, that was coming on his generation, Abraham pleaded with God in his generation that it wouldn't be so. In other words, Abraham had the kind of passionate concern for the lost that delights the heart of God, a God whose every inclination is that nobody would perish. And as we saw, this God preemptively prompted Abraham to intercede. He was delighted to respond to Abraham's prayer by showing mercy. When ten couldn't be found, he went beyond what Abraham even asked to pluck the only righteous family out. When you go home and read Genesis 19, you'll see he did destroy Sodom. So make no mistake, our God is a just God. And since scripture tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he will bring judgment on this wicked world that we're living in. So as we see God's wrath on the horizon against sexual sin, social injustice, oppression, what if we refuse to be a church of Jonas? What if we purposed together we weren't even going to be a church of merely Noah's, but rather a church of Abraham's on the North Shore with calloused knees from pleading from our neighbors, for our neighbors? That's the response that delights God because it's the response that best reflects his own heart. Nowhere would, do we see that heart more clearly than in his son. The perfect imprint of his character the New Testament tells us when Jesus, the Son of God, saw our wickedness and rebellion, when he saw that we had sinned our way into being objects of God's wrath, Romans 1, he wasn't content to remain in heavenly comfort in his fortress up there, so to speak, while we remained in our sin. Instead, he entered into our mess to save us by taking all the fury that God rained down on Sodom in his own body in a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. Three days later, God vindicated Jesus, raising him from the dead. And now that he has been raised and he has ascended into heaven, did you know that he's praying for you and me today? Scripture tells us he never ceases interceding for us before the Father with even more boldness than Abraham had here in Genesis 18. If you haven't placed your faith in him yet, today's the day to give yourself to the ultimate mediator between God and humanity, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And if you have placed your faith in him, today's the day, perhaps, for us to be filled with gratitude for his constant interceding on our behalf 
so filled with gratitude that we ourselves choose to bring him delight by praying earnestly for our neighbors. Let's pray now. Let's actually take a moment at the beginning of this prayer, just in silence, for each of us to pray for our neighbors, specifically by name in our heads. Uh, lift up your neighbors, especially those that don't know the Lord uh, before him now. Draw them to yourself, Lord. Not as an exception to your character, but as an expression of your character because we know you are a God who delights to bring glory to yourself by saving the lost. You did it with us. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin. May our gratitude be such that we desperately yearn for our neighbors to know you like we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of us have felt God begin to reshape our hearts recently or maybe years ago to become the sort of people who care deeply about our neighbors, the kind of people who want to see them experience the life that we found in Christ, so we start praying for them. But for some of us, we just can't quite figure out on a practical level how to connect with them. That's a struggle. How, how to initiate spiritual conversation there. For that reason, I reached out this week to four people in our church who demonstrate uh, this heart of Abraham, outwardly so, the, this sincere concern for their neighbors. So we have Xander Johnson, a college student now who grew up at North Sub, uh, Beth Durham, an empty nester, my wife Sarah, a mom of young kids, and Scott Crone, a dad with high school and college age kids. These four were gracious enough to share on video some of their approach just to life in their neighborhoods. And sometimes for me, it's helpful just to hear in concrete terms what neighborhood life can look like, right? Not that I'll copy someone else's approach, but so that their approach might spark some inspiration for where the Spirit might want to lead me in my own interactions with my neighbors. So that's our hope for this video. Let's watch it now. One way we've been intentional getting to know our neighbors is by participating down at our sailing beach. We found that we share a common bond with sailing enjoying the beach and just hanging out during the summer. And so we've invested time in getting to know people down there. And as a result, it's led to um, doing other things out, out, outside of the beach with them. For instance, we held a midwinter beach party so that we had the opportunity to see them in the off season. One way God has shown up at the beach is just by hanging out with people. You know, when we sit around and we talk and we spend time with one another, we get to know each other and understand what's going on in each other's lives. But we also have the opportunity of introducing them to our friends from church and from other places so they get to understand who we are and what's important to us and sharing both the joys and the struggles with life and them getting the opportunity to see how we go through life together. We moved in our home the end of August. We knew that we wanted to do something special to connect with our neighbors during this pandemic. 
So we did something we had never done before. On October 1st, I went out and bought two life-size pelicans. And every day for the month of October, we decorated and did something different with them. Once they were washing the car, another time they were doing yard work. Sometimes uh, they were scenes from TV shows or even movies. We continued this through the first week of November. On, during the election week, we turned our display into a food drive. Uh, we collected over 450 food items. Our neighbor's overwhelming response to our food drive warmed my heart. We received several thank you cards from the neighbors, including one that said that we were the light and the darkness in the neighborhood. And several would stop and introduce themselves to us. In high school, I went about reaching my friends that didn't know Jesus with the gospel in several simple ways. I would bring up God in casual conversation and try to show them the love of God each and every day through my words and actions towards them. Then I would ask my friends to come and experience youth group with me each Sunday. I knew that even if they weren't singing the worship songs or asking questions about the sermon, that God was always working in their hearts. Then I would talk to my friends about their experience and pray that God continue to work in their hearts. Overall, I felt that I didn't need to do much of the heavy lifting when it came to reaching people with the gospel. God did the heavy lifting, and all I needed to do was plant some seeds and pray. When we first bought our house a couple summers ago, one of the things I was the most excited about was to make friends. We'd been living in a condo and didn't have people our age around us, and so right when we moved in, I started meeting other moms that had small kids, and um, some of them have become like my very best friends. And I didn't become friends with them because I'm a Christian. I became friends with them because I wanted friends that I could share life with, could share motherhood with, could share, you know, the normal things we all go through, right? Like hard times in our marriage, hard times in our parenting, hard times in our jobs. Um, so in that sense, I'm no different than any of my friends who live in the neighborhood. Um, the one thing that is different for me because of my faith is that when I go through those hard things, so much of how I approach it is because of who Jesus is to me, because of the, you know, consistency and foundation um, that he provides for me. And so while I love my friends in our neighborhood, kind of regardless of what they think about Jesus, I just want that for them too. When they're having a hard time in their marriage, I want them to have that same assurance of God's love and God's care. When they're having a hard time in parenting or at work, I want them to have the same security in Christ that I have in those hard things. What we did was a bit extreme and may intimidate some. That's okay, you don't have to go that way. You can start by being observant in the neighborhood. Maybe you'll see a sign that says it's a boy or it's a girl. Consider making it hard for them. Or if you know you have an older neighbor and you notice that their sidewalk is a shovel, maybe you can go and shovel that snow for them. You don't have to know your neighbors to do these things. It's the way you get to know them. These little things can make a difference. One thing that we really took away from our relationship with the Laboos was try to find opportunities that we can enjoy um, doing things that we like to do that other people like to do. So whether that might be going to the community rec center uh, or music or just different things that, you know, that are offered around town um, is a great opportunity to meet someone. So if it's going to the library, the coffee shop, um, those are the types of things that we have found uh, 
from our experience with the Laboos is how to get to better know our community. Some recommendations I have for a high school student who wants to share their faith with their friend but doesn't know where to start, start by asking your friend about their own faith and what they believe in. That will kickstart a conversation where they end up asking what you believe in, and then you can explain the gospel to them right then and there. You never know what is going on in someone's mind and heart, and God could be using you to spread his word to people that desperately need it. You can also just start by telling someone that you're praying for them while they're going through a tough time, or invite them to something. In high school, there are so many Christian groups that you can join and invite others to. I personally was a part of Young Life, which was a great way to invite others to experience the gospel. I think a huge part of how we've gotten so close to our neighbors is just from having shared experiences and lots of time together. I think a huge shift we made during COVID was even though we have like a really fun, you know, great backyard and we have actually a really small, not great front yard, we started hanging out in our front yard like a lot during COVID just to like be accessible to people walking around. And I think like small things like that, um, where we started having these shared experiences, hanging out, playing outside with our neighbors four or five times a week really helped bridge that relationship and take it from, you know, a casual acquaintance kind of relationship to like a deep friendship where we could share about life and talk about things. And I think the jump to then talking about Jesus is so easy and so natural because, you know, yeah, I have problems in my marriage too. And so when we're talking about that, it becomes, what else would I do besides say like, yeah, I get that. I go through that, but this is like how it's different for me because of my faith and because of who Christ is to me. And so I really think the shared experiences and time together is what's made all of those meaningful conversations even possible. people who participated in that video and praise God for how he's working um, through them and their in their communities. So uh, we're going to sing one final song here and um, if you would please stand and join us. <laughs> 